you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids club. If you are that which remains, you get to listen to me rather than play games. This morning, we're walking into a new series. We have finished a four-week series talking about vision, uh, walking through a, a, a series called Calvary 101, and we're walking into a new series, which I've entitled The Table, Having Fellowship with Jesus. You know, Jesus used the tables extensively through his ministry. Commonly, he used a table uh, to invite sinners to meet with. In fact, uh, you remember Zacchaeus, he invited uh, to come down from a tree and to go with him and to enjoy a meal with him. Uh, Often, Jesus was accused of sitting and dining with sinners. And so there was always something really important about the table in the New Testament. And oftentimes, Jesus used it for very intentional purposes. And as we walk into this series, we're going to look at a very intentional purpose that Jesus used this table for. Because as we look at this... We're going to walk through John 13 through 17. Academically, this is called the Upper Room Discourse, but it's more commonly known as the Last Supper, which is the picture shown by Leonardo da Vinci, as you would have seen it. Jesus sat down with his disciples. He invited these 12 guys together for one last meal. He invited them together. This is perhaps a three-hour gathering that they sat and enjoyed fellowship where Jesus prepared them and taught them for a final time before heading to the cross. In fact, immediately following this meal, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is handed over. So if we're going to walk into the book of John, we at least need to give you some sense of the book of John. We've talked about John a couple of times over the last couple months, but John 20, 30 through 31, gives you the purpose for the book of John. It's interesting. Historians will, will say that every, everyone who writes, writes for a purpose. That there is not a, a way that you could go about writing something without being purposeful about it. And so John gives you his purpose statement in John twenty thirty, He said, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John pens pens an entire gospel collecting stories telling you what Jesus did on earth in a public ministry. You find that to be uh, John 1 through 12. How Jesus trained his disciples in the book of John. You find that in 13 through 17. What did it look like for Jesus to go before people, to love them, and to tell them of the kingdom of God? But John wanted you to believe John wanted you to believe in Jesus, and that by believing, you'd have life. He's very clear about that. His hope is that you would believe. Now, one of the most key words in the Gospel of John is this word, believe. It occurs 98 times. What's interesting about believe in the Gospel of John is that the the noun form, faith, doesn't occur. John's always putting before you this verb, to believe. Because he recognizes the challenge of belief. That it's an active move towards believing God. Believing God is who he says he is. And trusting him implicitly. So as we walk into John 13, just to give you some background information of what's happened in this book so far. John has seven great signs 
And in fact, the first one's in John 2, changing of water into wine at Cana. In John 4, he heals the official son in Capernaum. In John 5, he heals an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. In John 6, he feeds the 5,000. In John 6, he later walks on water. In John 9, he heals a blind man. And in John 11, Jesus heals Lazarus from the dead. He walks you through these signs. And at the same time, there's this statement of who Jesus is throughout this book. You find the great I am statements in the book of John. John 6, I am the bread of life. And John 8, I am the light of the world. And John 10, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. And during this meal, he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And in each one of those seven great I am statements, he's making an indisputable claim to be the Messiah. He's making a messianic claim saying, I am the Christ. I'm your only hope. So at the end of these three years walking with these guys in and out of the public eye, he gathers 12 men together in an upper room in a house in Jerusalem. And he sits down. And they eat together. So if you'd open up your Bibles to John 13. If you've got a Red Pew Bible, it's page 900. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take it before you. But we're starting on page 900, John 13, 1. John sets the stage for, the, for this Last Supper. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the full. So in this brief meal, John wants to set the stage. He gives you a time period. Now before the feast of the Passover, he's placing it for you that this is a Passover meal that they've gathered, that Jesus had come to this place where it's his time to leave the world. You find six times to this gospel where Jesus says, it is not my time. Here Jesus says, turns a corner, it is my time. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Literally, he loved them to the fullest. That Jesus loved these guys in a full and complete way that they'd never known before. And by means of context, he gives you this too in verse 2. And during supper... Now that's going to become an extraordinary statement for us in just a minute. Because it's telling you that the meal has begun. You don't say during supper before a meal. You don't say during supper as people are gathering. Because that's going to place what happens next in a very particular place, which is extraordinary. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, He's giving you this context that these guys are already gathered at a meal and Judas is there. Now Judas' presence becomes extraordinary. Because Judas' presence suggests in this table of 12, there's one there who will betray Jesus. But what's fascinating about this one is that Jesus loved him no less than he did the other 11. In fact, Jesus loved Judas so well that when it comes down to it, when they ask the question, who would betray Jesus, nobody knows. Jesus loves all of these guys incredibly well. And it's Judas who refuses to receive the love. 
And we'll walk through that next week. Sitting around a table with 12 guys. Now you should know, this is not the picture you see from the Last Supper pictured by Leonardo da Vinci. This is a triclinium table, if you'll let me say that. A triclinium table is a short table, maybe 18 inches high. What, what happened is these guys would lay down and lean on one another. And so as they were laying their back, leaning on one another, you find as we walk through the text that Jesus is laying down, leaning back, John, his favorite disciples, leaning into him. This is an extraordinarily intimate meal. Now, I don't know if you want to gather later and lean on each other to eat, but you'd find it to be intimate. Because you would find that if you're going to lean on one another, you're only going to eat with one hand because you're leaning on the other. But you're going to be close. And if we walk through this, you're going to find leaning on this table something else extraordinary. Because John is leaning on Jesus. Do you know who Jesus is leaning on? Judas, according to the text. Significant. We'll walk through that next week. So it continues on to give you this background to this table conversation in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now we're going to come back to that statement at the end because it's going to be an important statement for us to look back at for Jesus' example But it tells you that Jesus totally understood his identity. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was about. So when he stood up from the table, he laid aside his outer garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist. Now why this becomes important for us to see this as a supper time meal is because a lot of people take this passage and they want to interpret it as a common foot washing. Everyone's coming to my house, I should wash your feet, like a normal servant would. That's how most of the time people address this text. But just for a moment, I want you to consider if you invited people to your house, they're coming over, it's a really cold night, would you ask them to take off their jacket when they came in, or would you wait until you started the meal? See, the meal's already started, so this foot washing is is different than a common foot washing. There's something really significant about what's going to happen and about who's going to do it. Because as they're engaging this common Passover meal, there's things that happen. There's stages that go along. And so when Jesus stands up, these guys are anticipating a washing. What they're not anticipating is who's going to do it. It says Jesus laid aside his outer garment Now, if we know a couple of things about what Jesus wore, we know that he wore a robe. It was seamless. It was actually a very expensive robe. You know that they gambled for it when he was crucified. But he had an outer robe, and this is the outer robe they're talking about, that Jesus wore this outer robe that identified himself, that identified him as a rabbi. You know that because when Jesus walked the streets, when he walked into synagogues, people knew who he was. They recognized him as a rabbi. So Jesus has this outer garment that's quite heavy, quite expensive, and is a massive status symbol. So when Jesus chooses to lay that aside and take, pick up a towel and wrap it around himself, something significant is happening that's blowing these guys' minds. Because this teacher 
This man whom they follow is laying aside his outer identity and becoming a servant. Now, in this particular case and in this context, if you were going to invite people into your house, you'd probably have a slave wash their feet. But you have to appreciate in this context that washing feet was seen as such a menial task that the law didn't even allow them to let a Jewish slave wash the feet. You had to go find a Gentile slave to do it because it was such a low task. So when Jesus is going to take on something, he takes on a really, really low menial task because he's trying to show them something. He's trying to teach them something. In fact, later on, John 15, Jesus will say this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is starting to put this example before them of what his servanthood will accomplish, what it will do. And Paul comments about this in Philippians 2. Having the same mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Paul in Philippians is challenging you to the same heart attitude that John will here in a moment. Who who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took off his robe. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see this picture that Jesus stands up at this meal and does something by taking off his garment and taking on a towel and tying it around his waist that's significant to these guys. Now if you follow along in the text, if you appreciate that Jesus is washing these guys' feet, then it's, some, it's entirely possible when he comes to Peter that he's washed a handful of guys' feet. Several guys have accepted this. And in verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter, who looks at him and says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like, I I don't get it. Like, what are you doing? And and I don't know if you've ever been a part of a foot washing. Uh, They're a little bit awkward. I've been in a couple of them. They're a little bit awkward because my feet are a little bit gnarly. They stink. Um... It's a good thing when I wear clean socks. These guys were a little bit of that fold. They wore sandals all the time. They they probably had all kinds of dirt, dung, all sorts of other things that would get caught in their feet. And and so Peter's thinking, Lord, this, no, you, you do not have to clean my feet. Peter wasn't sure how to handle it. He didn't know how to handle Jesus serving him like this. It made him entirely uncomfortable. So let's take a step back and look at this foot washing. Because if this foot washing was not a common foot washing, as someone would come to your house, what was it? Well, I want to give you a quote from one of my favorite seminary professors, a guy named Dwight Pentecost. Dr. P, as Dow Seminary students know him. Dr. P was 99 years old when he went into glory last year. By the way, taught until he was 98. Fully believed that as long as God gave him breath, he was called to use his gifts to benefit the church, but this is what Dr. P had to say. He said, the submission to the foot washing was a sign of the confession of the need for cleansing and an affirmation of faith that when the Messiah came, 
he would provide cleansing for his people. Let me read that again. The submission to the washing of, was a sign of the confession of need for cleansing and an affirmation of faith that when Messiah came, he would provide cleansing for his people. So in the middle of a very symbolic meal, when Jesus takes off his outer robe and puts on a towel, he's playing a role. And these guys would have all understood the role. That to accept Jesus washing your feet would be to openly acknowledge that you were a sinner and that you had need to be cleansed. And that the Messiah was the only one who could ultimately cleanse you. He was the only one who could purify you. He was the only one that could make you right. So when Peter says, Lord, will you wash my feet? He's showing an objection that a lot of us have with Jesus. Lord, I don't know that I really need you to cleanse me. Lord, I'm not that bad. Lord, I'm a pretty good guy. Lord, I've got my stuff together. Lord, if we were to rank everyone on a good person's scale, I'm pretty good. Do I really need you? See, it's interesting because we see this happening in the Gospels. The guys are good enough to be in the fellowship of Jesus to walk with him. But to actually then take the step of believing him and to believe that his death would cover their sins, that's a big step. And church, there's enough of us in this room to suggest that some of you haven't taken it. That some of you like to take the fellowship of Jesus. You like to walk amongst his people. You like to hang out with them. But you've never let him cleanse your feet. You've never let him wash off your junk, your dirt, and your gunk. And I'm guessing for some of you, it's because you don't think he can handle your dirt. Because you don't think it's significant. You don't think it's enough. And what Jesus would have for you today and on every day is the reality that his death on the cross was significant and huge and more than enough to cover all of our junk. You see, as a church, we have a, a problem that we like to gather and we like to put on our, our nice clothes so we can act like we have our stuff together. Because we like to walk in a room and make everyone think, I've got my life together. My marriage is awesome. My kids all obey the first time. All of our rooms are clean. My wife already made dinner tonight. Our cars are all washed. Our life is perfect. But that's not true for us, is it? It's not true for any of us. That we actually gather as a church, as a group of people who are recognized that we're, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ because our life is not enough. It's not good enough. We can't accomplish it. That we actually desperately need this washing to cover us the sin, to take away the mess and the filth that we've built up in our lives that we can't deal with. So that's what, exactly what Jesus does. In fact, in verse 7, he takes a step. He says, Jesus answers him, What I'm doing you do not now understand. But afterwards... You will understand. And Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. 
Even when Jesus tells him, you don't totally understand what's going on, but trust me, I've got your best in mind. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to work this out for you. I'm going to tell you about it later. Peter still objects. No, you can't take my mess. You can't possibly deal with what I've got. Jesus answers him, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It tells you that there's something really substantial going on here. This is more than a normal foot washing. That their willingness to accept his messianic claim is at stake. Jesus, in effect, tells him, unless I wash your sins away, by my atoning death, you will have no real relationship with me. Unless I wash your sins away by my death, you will have no real relationship to me. Church, that's huge. Because it slays the table where Jesus puts it out there for us. Then unless we accept his sacrificial death for our sins, we don't have a relationship with him. It comes down to just that. A number of years ago, Billy Graham was asked, what percent of the attending church do you think actually knows Jesus? This is Billy Graham. If you're going to quote anyone in a church, you can get away with quoting Billy Graham. Do you know what his percent was? 190, 175, 150. Billy Graham suggested that potentially 5% of the church attenders in America actually knew and walked with Jesus. This is why when Jesus tells a parable that some of you, some of us will get to heaven and go, but Lord, when? When did I see you hungry and not meet your needs? When did I see you thirsty? Because we got a business to do with Jesus. When he presents himself as the Messiah and say, I will wash your feet. I alone can make you clean. You have to reconcile your life with that comment. Will you have real fellowship with Jesus by taking the mess that you've made of your life? By the way, my life is crazy messy. Don't make the mistake of thinking the pastors got it together. My life is messy. I stand before you as someone who desperately needs Jesus Christ. And I could tell you, I could take in the filth of my life, the mistakes I've made, and I've put them before Jesus. I said, Jesus, take away my, take away my sin. I can't do anything with it. It's holding me back. It's beating me up. It's weighing me down. Take it. And I stand before you as a man who can just say he did. That God has been so gracious to me. He's been so gracious to me. So Peter says, apparently having gained some understanding in verse 9, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. He starts to get a, a sense of understanding of what Jesus has for him. Jesus being very practical and theological 
says to him, the only one, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. See, that's huge. Because Jesus, having washed all of these guys' feet by the end of it, says you are all clean except for one of you. Because the reality that Jesus Christ washed these guys' feet doesn't necessitate that they've been cleaned. Whether that, what necessitates it is whether or not they accepted his cleansing. You find Judas didn't. Now where that's significant for the church that we walk in today is that it's possible that you've walked an aisle, you've been baptized, you've done all the public signs. That everyone around you is thinking, oh, that guy's awesome. He's really good. He's got it nailed. He's got his life together. And it all comes down to whether or not we're willing to accept Christ's death and resurrection as to pay the price for our sins because Jesus loved Judas to the fullest. He was aware of Judas. He cleansed his feet. Nobody knew who the betrayer was. Salvation was made available to him. And he still walked away. Verse 12. And when he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed in his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? Church, there's not a better question for us to consider this morning. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that also should, should do as, just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we have at this meal... In these short 17 verses, two things that happen that are significant for us believers. The first thing is that Jesus puts before these guys, you must be washed by me. You must have fellowship with me. You must accept my cleansing to have fellowship with me. Jesus offers them salvation, loving them well, saying that I'm the only one that can cleanse you from your sin. And he does so in a servant-hearted way. That in the end, he also says that how I've served you, I want you to serve other people. That the same service that I've rendered by being willing to let go of who I am, to lower myself, to love you, it's exactly what I want you to do for each other. In fact, we'll find that later on when we get to when Jesus destroys the golden rule, which says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Friends, that's not biblical remotely. Every secular theology and philosophy has a similar statement. What Jesus says, which is crazy, as I have loved you, so I want you to love. As I have loved you, so I want you to love. So you don't look at somebody and try to love them in a way that they'll love you back. You look at somebody and try to love them in the way Jesus wants to love them. 
Jesus who paid the ultimate price. So when Jesus puts this model of servanthood before them, he's setting a paradigm shift before them and it tells them that love has to look different. And he starts to shift that on them. So when Jesus says, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you, we need to consider his example. So now because we've got time, I want to bounce you back into verse 3, which is the next slide, by the way. I want you to see for just a second what this example looks like. Because if Jesus challenges these guys both with salvation and servanthood, we should be challenged in this text both by his salvation and by his servanthood. So what it says in verse 3 that becomes significant for us is that Jesus knowing that the Father had given him all things in his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, Jesus tells you that the beginning of servanthood is identity. That if you want to be a servant, step one, we'll give you three, because we're good Baptists, is to understand identity. And what Jesus says about identity is knowing that the Father had given me all things, and knowing that I'd come from God and that I'm going back to God, Jesus' identity wasn't at stake by serving people. He knew who he was, he knew who God said that he was, and that was way more important than what other people thought. And that sets the stage for the second step number two, if you want to be a servant. You find it in verse four. If you know who you are, you take the next step, and you remove barriers and you remove appearances. Because the next thing he does is he takes off this outer robe, he takes off his status symbol, says, I'm not more important than you. I'm not more significant than you. I'm going to take away everything that you would esteem me for publicly. And then he serves. He does the lowest menial task he can do for these guys. Now, it becomes important for us because if Jesus says, I've done it, given you example that you should follow, we want to know what it looks like to be this kind of servant. The answer is to start with your identity. Who are you? And in having a firm foundation of who you are, to drop all the barriers and external appearances, anything that would keep you from loving people well, to put that behind you, and to serve. To do low and menial tasks for people so that you might love them to the fullest. Now if we'll come back to 14 through 17, Jesus having given you an example that you should have done just as he did, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus then lines these guys up and says, You're not bigger than me. You're not more important than me. That if I can do this, so can you. If I can drop everything to love you in this way, so can you. If you, if you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. The great New Testament scholar Don Carson, or D.A. Carson, has this to say about this passage. Talking about our culture, he says, There's a form of religious piety that utters a hearty amen. By the way, thanks that nobody said that. 
to the most stringent demands of discipleship, but which rarely does anything about them. That it's pretty common in a church that somebody puts out a hard truth before you. You have a lot of folks going, mmm, some grunters, oh, some amens. We had a guy in Memphis who loved to yell, glory. We'll agree with something publicly. Because it's easier for us to say, that is a true truth. You guys should all be practicing it. And never actually internalize what Jesus has put before us. That as we come to the gospel, what's not important that you know it. What's important is that you follow it. That what Jesus puts before you, you trust and believe and put your hope in. Do this. As Jesus has called these 12 men to the table, he prepares them for fellowship. He does so by making a strong messianic claim, showing them that he is the Messiah. He does so by showing them that he is the only way that they can be cleansed, a model we have to consider and take That the only way we can find salvation is in the hope and trusting in what Jesus Christ did at the cross with our lives. And then he modeled servanthood for them, told them what it looked like, showed it to them, and he called them to be like himself. Church, as we walk through this passage, we need to know he's the only way of salvation. And having been saved by him, we also should become like him. Let me pray for us. Father, as we walk into this text to know you and to follow you, God, you love these people to the fullest through your son Jesus, even Judas who betrayed There's not one here this morning, there's not one amongst us, God, that you don't love to the fullest, that you don't love in an all-encompassing way. There's no one here who's made too much a mess of their life that you can't resolve it. There's no one here who's made too many mistakes that you can't cleanse. So, Father, may all of us this morning... Come to a better understanding of what you did for us at the cross. For some, that might be salvation. To finally yield themselves to the cross. And Father, even as you provided salvation for us, you provided a model. That as you started this process of laying down your life for these men, ultimately to to lay down your life completely. Father, you call us as your believers to do the same thing. May this example of servant-heartedness challenge us. May it keep us awake. Father, that we become more like you for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.